So I'd like to continue this exploration of uh, bringing metta into daily life or into the uh, everyday life that we lead outside of retreat. And I'd like to continue many of the themes that uh, Mark suggested and organize my thoughts uh, around first uh, our personal practice, our individual practice, and secondly, the way that we relate to others and the bringing of metta into some of the details of daily life. And third, about bringing metta into our participation in the larger world, into our communities and the larger societies that we live in. So first on on individual practice, uh, we've looked a few times at some of the questions like how do we do we do how do we connect metta and mindfulness and I hope that we all have a sense of how they they interfuse and how mature metta is very mindful and mature mindfulness is very metta-ish. And so to to remember that, but also concretely, some of us may choose to be doing individual metta practice regularly for as our major practice. I know when I've done periods, long periods of metta, such as a week or, or thereabouts, um, I've often wanted to just do metta every time I sat formally and bring it into my daily life a lot. Uh, to uh, Often I would uh, do the chanting at night, which sort of brings back that sense of the space and energy. And so many of us might do this. I remember Guy Armstrong said after doing metta, he did only metta for a year and a half. And so it's really, again, to listen to that uh, inner voice, sort of the voice of authenticity that we've been really each cultivating in many ways. For others, we may want to practice metta at the beginning of a sitting, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, at the end of a sitting, um, might want to do metta uh, or maybe also some of the other practices, the compassion or the mudita or the equanimity practice and might c- keep that uh, current by doing it uh, a few times a week. So it's important, as I think we all know, this daily practice keeps us tuned in as a kind of checking in like I come from a musical family and I always have been told, well, and by my um, family members and by teachers to really keep the, um, even just a few minutes keeps a thread going or keeps something going. So it's one guideline that I sometimes use. There are days when we are completely frantic and busy. Does anyone else have those occasionally? (laughs) And even there, we always have five minutes. And so really to keep that five minutes, it keeps the thread going. I used to play clarinet and my teacher used to say, just a few minutes a day keeps the embouchure in good shape. So keep your metta embouchure going, going well. Connecting with others who understand metta, being in sitting groups or even just having uh, a metta buddy or someone that you connect with uh, doesn't have to be a large group and you can initiate yourself if you're near a place or live in an area where there are groups uh, can be tremendously supportive as I think 
most of us most of us know. You can also start your own group. Uh, I once was in a group of three people. We met every two weeks for uh, ended up nine months, and it was very very sustaining. So we don't have to have the idea. Oh, we've got to have ten or twenty people, or I won't be in a group. You can have a group with two people. Probably, a lot of you have the habit of maybe having lunch once a week with a particular friend, and something like that can be fruitful. Or, you know, if you feel like it, um, find someone before you leave the retreat and say, "Will you be my meta buddy and talk to me on the telephone or send me meta emails?" You know, a lot of possibilities. Right? I know. Uh, some of us, I think Sylvia had a practice with, maybe still does, with uh, Carol Wilson, uh, right, of, uh, is it with gratitude? Yeah. Yeah, with gratitude practice, uh, just in some way sharing through email, just with one other person, and it keep, it's very uh, sustaining. So the invitation is to be creative. Um, when, when I was uh, learning some of the finer points of metta teaching from Sylvia, she had a very profound statement about metta, which was that it's all tinkering. <laughs> this, this may grow on you. <laughs> the statement. So, it's a, what? What's that? <laughs> so it's this... Um, this invitation to really see what works and to um, adapt, to, to um, be creative, to explore. One friend I know at the end of a metta retreat, she started a group that was just dedicated to metta. It's still going. It's been going for over three years. Meet once a month for uh, a few hours of metta on a Sunday morning and then have a potluck. And she invites people to do that. So it's a beautiful, beautiful idea. Another way to sustain one's practice in general, I want to just mention it because it's been really important for me, is the practice of a Sabbath or the practice of a time, hopefully on a regular basis during the week, when you come back and mm, have boundaries around the busyness or the telephones or the email. So for most of the last 25 years, I've done a Sabbath uh, once a week. Uh, which has been usually most of a whole day, really just devoted to quiet. It's an old tradition, as we know, both Eastern and Western. And just to have that sense of boundaries and quiet and no telephones as much as possible or emails. And sometimes, you know, I have many friends and students, and some of them do it for, well, a whole day is too much, but they do it for three or four hours. One friend does it every Friday from two to six and has a profound effect on one's life because it carves out this territory. And much like the practice of the Sabbath uh, in different traditions, it becomes the pivot of the week. And it's really um, very, very sustaining. And you might try it again. It can be three or four hours, but the key is to have the boundary and have it be a sacred space. It doesn't have to be just sitting meditation. It can be being in the mountains or the forest or by the water doing some reading, doing some sitting and walking, but it carves out this space where we come, really come back to ourselves. Study is helpful, and there um, is a list of some books and different materials uh, on the board. It can be very helpful to um, study books, uh, listen to talks and so forth, and with the Internet, all sorts of talks hopefully of good quality, are available. 
but it's quite tremendous. There are all sorts of resources uh, from many different centers have uh, just post-talks. Retreats, coming back to the retreat space, and what you'll find is that sometimes we, we enter the retreat space and to some extent we keep going from where we were. There's always that re-entry time, but there's a way in which the, it's like the, the deep self checks in at certain times, as we know, and um, keeps moving. So retreats are very special. So secondly, in, in the movements of daily life and our relationships with others, there are all sorts of uh, wonderful ways to bring metta in. Again, there's a lot of room for creativity. As Mark said, the hardest thing is not to do metta or to be mindful, it's to remember to be mindful. And so whatever helps us remember is actually really, really important. Um, Some people actually have uh, remembrances on their computers or on their dashboards, and there's a humorous aspect to all this, but it's also meaningful because it helps us to remember. Of course, it has to be alive, and we can have something on our computer, and it can become dead after a while. But so whatever brings that aliveness, whatever helps us to remember artwork, emails to friends, and so forth. Some of the groups I'm in that I, that I lead, they, um, people send emails to each other reminding themselves of what we're looking at in a given week or two. And it's a very, very wonderful way just to remember. We can also uh, work especially with, the, with intentions. Mark also talked uh, quite a bit about intentions, and we've, we've emphasized the way in which metta really is an intention practice. It's inclining ourselves towards the open heart, not demanding the open heart, but inclining ourselves in that direction, setting the intention. And you may have uh, found when we did the talking in dyads, and we asked you just to take 30 seconds or a minute to set an intention, you might have found that a powerful way to work. It's something that I often do at meetings. I just set my intention. Just take 30 seconds or a minute and say, how do I want to be? And I may forget it five minutes later, but the intention, sometimes 10 minutes later, I remember it. You know, And so setting of intentions, very, very crucial. We can set intentions in a variety of ways. Um, I often go to meetings. Meetings seem to bring out um, the need for practice quite often. (laughs) If I had to tell a lot of my metta and daily life stories, many of them would be organized around meetings. And uh, just a short or small technique that I use is to write down on a sheet of paper my intention for the meeting and to have it in front of me. Not in huge print, it's not, um, you know, not ostentatious and so forth. But it helps because it's pretty hard. I'm just sitting there and right in front of me are these words, you know, like heart, truthful, or, or stay in your body, or something like that. And that can be tremendous help. I also actually have words near my telephone. You can use the a modification of the technique that, that Thich Nhat Hanh uses, which is to use the telephone 
as a time to come back to mindfulness. So you can use the telephone when it rings. You go, may I be happy? May I be peaceful? Hello? (laughs) And you can do that. It's actually, or use red lights rather than, you know, say, when is the light going to change or whatever? Just use red lights or use these natural opportunities in daily life, waiting for public transportation or whatever. Use it as a moment for mindfulness to come back I'll tell you a little story about another use of um, metta that I developed, uh, not originally with a clear intention, but two years ago, as I mentioned, I did a long period of metta, about five weeks of metta. And towards, right at the end of that time, you know, a few days before I had to leave the retreat, I had some responsibilities to take care of in the outer world. What that meant is that I had to check my email. And so, you know, after four and a half weeks of metta, I downloaded 400 emails. Mm. Thank you for your compassion. (laughs) (laughs) And while there, it was um, sometimes um, had its challenges. The the major, my major experience was that. Um, because I had been doing metta for four and a half weeks, <clears throat> there was no way that I could not do metta with emails. And it changed my practice, because I would always wondered, maybe like you had, how does the practice come in while one's on the computer? Buddha didn't say a lot about it. <laughs> you know, is it just that we go into this purely, purely you know, mental, virtual realm when we are on the computer? Is there a way to stay in one's body and be on the computer? Because it's, it's not easy, right? It's like it gets kind of drawn in. And so what I found that I was doing was that a practice started emerging. I think one that in some ways I had been following before. But what I found was that with every email, before sending it, I went through my four phrases. I did an internal meta-practice And then somewhere in the body of the message, I tried to express metta. It might be like, I hope this finds you well, or something like this, or I hope that your spirits are good, or something like this. And with people who I write to a lot, I kind of vary it so it doesn't get too old, or they don't, there's Donald doing his his thing, whatever. Um, But I found that it's actually stayed. It's been over two years, I think, maybe two years. And it's really stayed as a practice. Every email, I find I want to do that. It's a way to connect. It slows me down some, which is a big thing. Brings me to my body. And it's just this uh, beautiful practice that just has emerged. And I've talked about it with some of my groups and friends. And now I get a lot of emails that start with saying, I hope you're well. (laughs) people sending it to me, and it's, uh, and it's really hard now with email, which often is such an uh, impulsive medium. It's impossible to really be mean in an email. Not that I was that mean before, but there's something that, <laughs> there's something that uh, has shifted. You know, it's just, oh, metta practice is really important. I'm on the email, so I can do that. Another beautiful way to work with metta 
is when there's some distress or when there's some difficulty. It's, of course, a time when our practice is called for. And it's often the time when our practice flees, when we're in distress. You know, it's actually when our practice is most necessary. And sometimes our minds may be busy and we may be thinking, oh, I sit and I'm just all over the place. It's not doing me any good. I don't. And so, paradoxically, when we most need it, we often, don't, we often stop practicing or practice less, which is, um, um, I think there's a misunderstanding there, actually. You'll find it's really good to, even if the mind is really busy, it's really good to just keep coming back. It actually has a big effect, but we don't always know what it is. <clears throat> and so... In moments of distress, just to invite <clears throat> that spirit of metta to, to go right to the metta sometimes. You know, something really difficult happens. It's like holding ourselves. And I think generally speaking, when there's distress, sometimes mindfulness is really helpful because we want to say, okay, what's happening? What's really going on? And that's really, really valuable, important. And sometimes we just feel really unbalanced. We can't quite be mindful. And metta is really important there. Like if I ever wake up in the middle of the night and something's really been bothering me, often I just go right to metta, especially if I think I'm just going to go off with it in some way that's not fruitful. Just go right to metta. Okay, don't even, don't even try to think it out. Just go right to metta. That's something, something that I use. And it's um, when there's self-judgment, self-judgment comes up. Sometimes it's good to go right to metta. Again, Sometimes valuable to inquire, to see what's there. Sometimes valuable to work with metta. It's like we have these two broad tools, which are really our mm, resources that sustain us in many ways. The spirit of metta sometimes takes the form of these working with phrases, And sometimes the spirit of metta is just the quality of wishing well or being warm. And there are many ways in which we can really have that quality of metta, and it may not look like phrases. I think we know this. Mark talked about that quite a bit last night. But that spirit of kindness, of really seeing what's there in a workplace, it might take the form, what, of bringing flowers, or it might... It might be that which brings more heart into a, into a family or a place. That's the spirit of metta. It might be something that I've helped with in some of my workplaces. It might be to have like a mini retreat for coworkers together so they hear each other's stories. And there's an opening of the heart in the workplace, which can often be very uh, task-oriented. So metta takes all these different forms Another very valuable resource, support for metta, is the ethical precepts. We know that uh, metta really flourishes where there's safety. And the ethical precepts, the, which are basically about not harming others and bringing care and love to each other, that's really what the ethical precepts are about. But they take this uh, form, the, the that we work with in terms of the not harming of others, not taking that which is not given, and then being very careful with the energies of speech and sexuality and substances which uh, shift consciousness, that these in a way are a, 
uh, protection for ourselves and others. And it's very, uh, keeping the precepts and having those as a kind of discipline will support your metta tremendously. It will establish the basis for the metta really to be nourished, to, to uh, go forth, to come out. And I think it's actually even uh, more profound than that. There's a, uh, the sense of the metta, I think itself, is a form of following the ethical precepts. It's a form of not harming. There's a very powerful passage which uh, my colleague Guy Armstrong pointed out to me a number of years ago, which is a line that just transfixed me when I first heard it. And the line is from the Buddha. The line is, one who loves oneself will not harm another. One who loves oneself will not harm another. I feel some resonating here. It's, um, I'll read actually the passage from, from the text where it came from. This is the Buddha talking about metta and talking about the importance of caring for oneself. He said, I visited all quarters with my mind, nor found I any dearer than myself. Self is likewise to every other dear. One who loves oneself will not harm another. And this um, has really stayed with me. I think it's a very, very profound statement. It has actually many levels of meaning. It points to the way that uh, loving oneself is not just an add-on or it's not selfish either, as as we've seen but that it's a force that we we really need in order to love others. So self-love is necessary for loving others. If we don't love ourselves and know ourselves well, we'll tend to mm, project out into the world. We'll tend to see that which we don't like in ourselves and tend to find it in others. Carl Jung once said that that which we don't know in ourselves, we tend to project outward into the world where we encounter it as demonic. That goes for governments as well. (laughs) It's true. It's it's a powerful one, isn't it? This is what uh, Thomas Merton once said. It is not only our hatred of others that is dangerous, but also and above all, our hatred of ourselves. Particularly that hatred of ourselves which is too deep and too powerful to be consciously faced. That's what we're uncovering in the metta. For it is this which makes us see our own evil in others and unable to see it in ourselves. So metta addresses that. The Zen teacher and psychologist John Tarrant said, when we know and have gone through our own darkness, we don't make others carry it for us. So that sense of one who loves oneself will not harm another, it's very powerful. It also, I think, suggests the way that 
some of the sources of harming may be a lack of self-love, a lack of metta. And again, we can see this when we look into the society. You know, and I remember very distinctly watching a program uh, with Bill Moyers, which was, had interviews with teenagers who had murdered. And person after person, when he interviewed them, they basically all said something like, I was really, really, really hurting, and I wanted someone else to know how badly things hurt. And that person was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so this uh, cultivation of metta and of self-love, I think actually is a very powerful force in social change and in responding to suffering. It's a very, it's a very deep aspect. And so it really is to bring me to this last area that there's a tremendous need for metta in the world, for this quality of loving self and loving other. And somehow we need to find ways to bring it in further into our work, our communities, in the, in the larger world. Part of how we train in this is we learn better how to be with people who are difficult for us and how to gradually, working with the mildly difficult people in metta, in our practice, we learn how to have a different relationship with people who are difficult. Valuable for individuals, valuable in communities, incredibly valuable in the world. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about sending love letters to politicians with whom he disagrees. There's a beautiful story that I heard uh, from my mother a little while ago, which I want to share with you, which is a story about a woman named Shirley Chisholm, who uh, died, uh, I think, about a year ago. She was uh, the first African-American woman congressperson in the United States. She was four foot ten. And I actually met her uh, several times because when I was in college, I actually worked in the U.S. Congress, previous incarnation. And she represented a district in Brooklyn. And some of you may know or remember that in 1972, she ran for president. She was the first woman to run for president. And one of her opponents in that election was George Wallace, the arch-segregationist uh, from uh, Alabama. And during, that, during the election campaign, there was an assassination attempt on Wallace. He was shot, and he eventually, you know, he eventually was paralyzed for the rest of his life. And Shirley Chisholm went to visit him in the hospital. And when he saw her, he said to her, your people aren't going to like that you're here, will they? And her response was, I wouldn't want this to happen to anyone. So that's metta, isn't it? It's a powerful metta. And the 
story actually continues because, um, as many of you know, uh, George Wallace shifted in his views. And by the, I think within a short time, but certainly uh, within 10 years or 15 years of that, he had repudiated his past. And he actually was a spokesperson for, um, for reconciliation. And about a year, or actually maybe it was less than a year, maybe a year or two after uh, that the assassination attempt, Shirley Chisholm was bringing a bill forth in the Congress for uh, a raise in the minimum wage. And she talked to George Wallace, and he gathered the support of a lot of Southern politicians, and the bill passed. So there's something very powerful that happened, and that was just a very simple metta, responding, very, very amazing. So, so the world really needs this uh, metta. You know, our lives need the metta, and it's really our, in many ways, our our work to ground ourselves, to stay in our own in our own field of metta, to take care of ourselves, not to take on too much in the world, to keep that balanced, really. I think metta is a lot about this way that we start with ourselves and then we open up and move out into the world. And it requires the staying at home, the staying with our bodies, the staying and taking care of ourselves, and then gradually moving out into the world. So I want to just close with two um, actually short poems that it really are about this, um, this need to bring the metta from ourselves out into the world. And the first is from Dina Metzger. It's very short. It's about the need in the world. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. And then the last is from Rilke, the German poet Rilke, whom many of us love. And this, is, this is a complete metapoem. It's the poem about moving out from ourself in what Rilke calls widening circles. So here it is. I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete this last one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, around the primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years, and I still don't know, am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song. I live my life in widening circles. Thank you. We might just sit for a minute or two.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.